I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 65 for August 2017. Uh, I'm Duncan, and 1965 saw the release of the Belgian classic Les Adventures de Strumpfs, otherwise known as The Adventures of the Smurfs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first Smurfs film ever made. And funnily enough, considering they're known by their iconic blue colour, the film was naturally released in black and white. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was. I didn't think there was a film that far back. That's no, amazing to me. I had no idea as well. Yeah, it was part All of my right. nineteen sixty-five investigation. Yeah. Ah, uh, look. Before Dario Argento hit the Italian thriller horror scene and revolutionised it with lurid colours, sweeping camera work, stabs of electronic prog rock, and stabs from creepy villains wearing black leather gloves, Mario Bava reigned supreme. Uh, his moody gothic horrors, The Incredible Black Sunday, rivalled and often bettered the work of the British horror studios and helped kick off. In famous giallo films with flicks like Blood and Black Lace. But 1965 was his Planet of the Vampires. <laughs> uh, Bava would make a true Italian horror oddity with this film, a gothic sci fi flick, low in gore and action, but packed to the gills with eerie atmosphere and, and really beautiful imagery. And it's a really inspired design, too. It'll seem positively retro to a modern audience with these like bulbous helmets, sleek space suits ships and even sleeker skin tight spacesuits and the cinematography of the alien planet is gorgeous there's a really clear line between the plot of vampires and alien as well oh, right. uh, planet of the vampires even features a skeleton of a long dead alien species reminiscent of the um space jockey oh, right. and i remember when prometheus came out as well the spacesuits looked exactly like the spacesuits from um but do you think it's uh, an accident no absolutely not i'm sure right. this is inspiration eh? clear oh. inspiration Oh, that's great. Um, so that's a really great 1965 film. Good fun. Brilliant. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. So um, we're going to be talking film festival quite a bit this month, I imagine. We've we just are. come out of the film festival. We have. So with that in mind, what have you been watching? What have you seen at the festival? Well, at the last minute, I managed to score tickets to the opening night of the festival, The Square. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, this was the New Zealand premiere of the Swedish film that won the Palme d'Or. Uh, the art world is ripe for skewering. Even the uneven film from a few years ago, Art School Confidential, managed to hit some entertaining targets. And so is the case with The Square, uh, where Claes Bang leads as the curator of an art museum who has a baffling new installation that is somehow always teetering between indifference and outrage in the reactions to it. Uh, Co-starring Elizabeth Moss and Dominic West, both of whom get at least one hilarious scene each. Uh, in one standout scene, an on-stage interviewer and their subject try to persevere with an interview despite an audience member suffering from aggressive Tourette's. And it's a perfect example of political correctness taken to an extreme. The film's first half is rock-solid comedy, and the second half is a little bit more social commentary. While director Ruben Osterlund has a lot of fun, and there is a sense of unpredictability and energy, there's also like a scattershot feeling to proceedings as if Ostland has too many strands of thought without a clear finish in mind. A film that comes with a palm door around its neck can be a heavy tag to wear for the expectant viewer, which was the case for me with The Square. Right. So because you know it's one, one of the highest honours you can, you're kind of waiting for it to just really blow your socks off, and it doesn't quite do that. Yep. 
but it is very entertaining and it actually made me think you know what this would be a great tv series i know i'm talking about cinema but this would the the targets they're going for and even the some of the characters you feel like i i could kind of watch these guys for a while um but as a feature film it just felt like it kind of drifted a bit too much for me right some of the comedic setups are fantastic and uh and the acting's great so yeah i recommend checking it out if you get a chance okay cool cool and uh i also saw the lost city of z yes as did i yeah and uh i enjoyed it i thought charlie hunman doesn't quite pull off the obsessive quality of the lead right yep um who is percy fawcett but the visuals are sumptuous with touches of everything from joseph conrad to Werner herzog the film snakes like the legendary Amazon River at the center of the search for the lost city of the title. Mm-hmm. The film does aim beyond for a lyricism that someone like, say, Terence Malick would at least raise an eyebrow at, I thought. Even if that ambition exceeds its reach a lot of mm-hmm. the time. Uh, it has action set pieces like a piranha attack and a brutal World War I scene. Um, a, a surprisingly calm Robert Patterson mm-hmm. <laughs> and a cowardly Angus McFadden. Uh, a largely thankless, traditional, long-suffering wife role for Sienna Miller. Uh, and the role of Fawcett was originally going to be uh, Benedict Cumberpatch. Yeah. Uh, who might have sold that kind of elusive, obsessive quality a little bit better. Yeah. I think that Hunman does the you know physicality and even some of the speech scenes he does quite well. Look, I, I largely agree. I, I, I didn't mind Hunman in this. But then again, my only point of comparison with him was Pacific Rim. Uh, in which he was a colourless hero in a, just a ridiculous film. And I know there's fans of that film out there. Uh, yeah. I like Robert Pattinson quite a lot, actually. I yeah. liked him a lot more. Um, reminding me, us, us once again, that we're in the middle of the Pattinsons? <laughs> or the Robersons, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Um, and and the location footage looked amazing. It looked beautiful. Apparently it was shot on 35 mil and, you know, mm. right there in the Amazon. But I still felt like I wanted more suffering. Yeah. Like I wanted that, like you talk about the obsessiveness, but I wanted mm. to see them really just drawn out of them, you know? Yeah. Pattinson looks diseased and wrecked every time they venture into the jungle, which is <laughs> fantastic. Uh, and others around them, you, you talked about Angus McFadden particularly, yeah. suffer heroically. So I kind of wish they'd allow Hunnam's movie star good looks to suffer a bit more during those yeah. phases, you know? He always kind of looks pretty decent, you know? Yeah, he he was kind of looked like he'd just gone off for a bit of a hike in the afternoon. A jaunt. Yeah, jaunt, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I kind of felt that they just got in and out of the jungle eh, pretty sweet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I, I just wanted, you know, I wanted it to be more uh, Wrath of God, you know? Um, yeah. Which yeah. is the Werner Herzog film where you just really felt things fall apart yeah <laughs> and you feel the exhaustion and you go man i'm glad i'm not there whereas with some of this you're like nah, i'll back myself you're fun yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll do better than this mcfadgen that's for sure oh totally <laughs> yeah uh also the first world war sequence well kind of harrowing seems unlikely in the manner in which a number of the core cast members are also able to show up yeah you know i just thought really i'm not sure that's likely yeah kind of odd um and i like the ending which had this beautiful for me, unexpectedly poetic quality about it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of, I don't know, it's a half half success for me. It's an enjoyable watch, but it doesn't yeah. go deep enough into... Yeah, and I think those qualities you speak of, particularly the last, say, 20 minutes of the film, I think are really good. Mm. And I, I wish the beginning had been a lot more like that. I wish it had taken its time uh, and been a bit more... Uh, in the telling of it, it had been a little bit more adventurous. Yeah, um, but yeah, and what have what do you manage to see at the uh, film festival? Oh well, look, not a heck of a lot. Um, I was just talking to uh, Duncan off mic earlier. 
I had tickets to two films that um, I, I got quite sick this last month that I didn't get to. One of them was Good Times, also starring Rob Patterson, and right. apparently he's fantastic. I managed to give that away to a, a, a friend of the show, so it was excellent. But I didn't make it to The Evil Within. Right. Just far too sick. Didn't make it. Wasted tickets. Feel right. terrible. <laughs> uh, but I did get to see uh, It Comes at Night, like a, which was like a claustrophobic, very shut in the road. It's like a zombie film without zombies. It's sort of a heartbreaking coming of age story with another solid Joel Edgerton performance. It's also like a, it's a disease film in which the horrors all come from within and come to the paranoia of these people shut in trying to avoid the illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I pretty much loved it, obviously. Um, and I was left kind of shell-shocked by the film. I sort of sat there in the cinema watching those credits roll, just thinking, oh, <laughs> you know, and just not wanting to get out of my seat for a few minutes. Right. So well, that's I don't want to say too much about it, which is a real cop-out, I know, but I just yeah. think if you can watch it, you know, don't yeah. try to find out too much about it. Just enjoy yeah. the film. It's, um, it was really powerful. Okay, well, I will do that because I know little of the film. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really good. And um, finally, the fascinating film version of the writings of American writer and social critic James Baldwin, mm-hmm. the Oscar-nominated I'm Not Your Negro. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no recreations in this film, no modern voices commenting on the action, just historic footage, Baldwin's own superb voice in interviews and speeches, and a really wonderfully measured performance. And I think a performance is the right way to use the word by Samuel L. Jackson reading the words of James Baldwin. I, I didn't even recognise it was Jackson to be honest for a little while you know right. he's not like doing a, a really yeah jackson like performance i guess if, if you know what i mean yeah it's reading the words of james baldwin from his final unfinished book on race in modern america uh through the lives of malcolm x martin luther king and medgar evers all the victims of assassination uh, the film makes um mixes in footage from our era as well obama's presidency talk shows the 2016 election campaign which was happening when he was making the film mm-hmm. uh but it's baldwin and his words who are the real stars as a film fan, I also loved the fact that Baldwin was a film lover and a film critic as well. Mm-hmm. So he critiques American cinema uh, through the constructed heroism of John Wayne, who, you know, as a kid he loved and then began to question as he got older. You right. Know. Um, and most memorably, describing a black audience's reaction to Sidney Poitier uh, in the Defiant Months, you know, helping helping uh, Tony Curtis escape. Mm. And, and he's saying that the audience were like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, why are you helping this guy? Yeah. Whereas like, the white audiences were like, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that was fascinating. I, I really like this film. Uh, it's it's really sprightly paced too. And, and a great story of a man working through his own changing feelings as, and perceptions as well because you get that, you can really sense his journey, mm-hmm. you know, like I say, from being a John Wayne fan as a kid to, you know, seeing him as a, I don't know, hating him's the wrong word, but, you know, just yeah. really understanding what he, how he treated the Indians and, you know. Yeah, it must movies. feel like a real betrayal. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And just um, questioning the ending of in, in the Heat of the Night, you know, is how that's more of a sop to white audiences. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, really, really fascinating film. Do you just go have sex with just anybody? Excuse me? Do you just go have sex with lots of other women? Uh, I... Do you not remember them? Yeah, sure, I do, yeah. You know their names? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Always? Always, yeah. 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 So what's my name? And so, Simon, what's the news? Right. Well, kicking off with the weird, how have I never heard of this, horror news, a script for a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street has emerged. It was written back in 1987 by John Saxon. Oh, really? Yeah. So Saxon is, of course, a genre icon, as well as playing the father of the original film's heroine. 
Uh, but how he wound up in the running for penning a sequel is kind of still a bit mysteri- mysterious to me. I'm not sure how this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Saxon sequel is actually a prequel, telling the story of a young Freddy Krueger who is actually a kindly therapist. <laughs> uh, no doubt asking his pa- patients to tell me about your father, bitch. Or <laughs> if you could just look at these Rorschach pictures, bitch. Um, who is unjustly accused of killing one of the patients and then murdered himself in revenge. Which is a storyline the disappointing remake kind of half-heartedly toyed with, if you remember. Mm-hmm. There was that sense of like, oh, maybe he was an innocent person. Yeah. Which I never got in that movie, eh? Because it's like, no, clearly he's not, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then that's when things get really nuts in Saxon script. Because when we discover the real killer behind the crimes Kruger was murdered for is none other than Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah. So with any luck, this treatment currently for sale on eBay, folks, has already been bought by Quentin Tarantino <laughs> as the basis for his upcoming Manson movie. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope Manson that's what it's going to be. Manson meets Freddy Krueger. Manson meets Krueger. Why not? Yeah, and Krueger ends up like, after being killed, taking his revenge out of Manson. Right. It's like haunting him, maybe. What yeah. do you think? I don't know. I don't know if that's what happens, but yeah, maybe well, it's what should. And maybe maybe Krueger was the one who killed, you know, like Sharon Tate and all those oh, people. Maybe. Possibilities are endless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saxon, that's great. Yeah, yeah. It's really nuts, eh? Good on you, Saxon. Well, look, director of Kong Skull Island... Jordan Viot Roberts, I'm not sure how okay. you say his name. Sounds good. Has been feeding the trolls with a litany of tweets aimed at the Cinema Sin series. Have you heard of this? I only really vaguely. I never read up on it. His film Kong Skull Island got the treatment, and he unleashed a stack of comments on Twitter, including saying Cinema Sins quote reeks of failed filmmaker taking his issues out on other people's work. Yeah, that's true. He accused Cinema Sins of contributing to the dumbing down of cinema for attacking a popcorn blockbuster about a giant ape fighting oversized reptiles. <laughs> uh, ironically, much like Cinema Sins itself, Voight Roberts made some valid points in amongst a deluge of mocking. He compared Cinema Sins to Trump, saying that they make stuff up and everyone believes them, and then engaged in a little fake news himself when he rather unconvincingly finished with, quote, to anyone who thinks this video makes me mad or hurts me, it doesn't. He then said he might watch the whole the whole Cinema Sins video if it didn't make him, quote, end up hammering a nail through his dick. Wow. Yeah. He shouldn't just read. He shouldn't, he shouldn't <laughs> engage with the trolls, though. It was fantastic. There's like about 20 tweets from him. And then the Cinema Sins people came back like a day later uh, with a great tweet that said, hey, guys, uh, sorry, um, been off social media for a day, had some errands to run. Anything interesting happen? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Cinema Sins, I've watched a couple of those. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I get what he's talking about, and it must be harsh when they rip into your film, but you made Kong Skull Island. You made a lot of money. You it's made a lot good. of money. It was a it's, successful film. It's, it's, it's a popcorn film. You know, it's, it, it's silly fun, and he took all, you know, he's kind of fighting on this level of... I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, but he's, you know what I mean? Like, he's fighting on this level of going through the minutiae of what they are, Yeah, and he's fighting back, and I just think that that's a losing battle. <laughs> Yeah, just, just turn around after you've written twenty tweets and then say this isn't getting me mad. You're wrong. Yeah, twenty like, tweets later. Yeah, I think maybe. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I yeah, I did hear about this, but I didn't I didn't read any further. Yeah, yeah great fun. I was just entertaining. I yeah. just, it was a great story. Fantastic. Look, it was announced a couple of days ago that Disney are working on a Ben Kenobi story, possibly to tell you and McGregor. And I kind of wonder what it will be about. After all, haven't we seen everything we need to know? Unless we go way back and discover how he became a Jedi before he met Anakin, there's surely not much to tell. Unless it's like a thoughtful story of a man spending 19 years, and, and thanks Wikipedia for that, 
uh, <laughs> in quiet introspection on the edges of the June Sea. Perhaps a doomed, unrequited love story of a Jedi and his love that cannot be for a Tatooine school teacher or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's not the real news for me here. The real news is the almost ignored announcement that Jabba the Hutt is getting his own origin story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struggling to see how this one will work. It really needs to centre around another character for me rather than a, you know, a hutty speaking space <laughs> slug. Uh, so someone rising up perhaps through the hut organisation, I think, and then maybe running afoul of the slug-like gangster in the third act. So maybe a kind of Star Warsian godfather, perhaps. Maybe, um, yeah. Yes, I don't know. I don't see how this film. I mean, I guess you're going to eventually run out of characters to tell origin stories about, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. You know. Yeah, both of those are interesting. Like, so I think the Jabba the Hut one's probably got a little bit more room to move because it can just be, you know, as Rogue One just did, kind of veer off in tone or or uh, character slightly. Um, and I think you could probably do a similar thing with Jabba the Hut. Like, there's enough colourful characters around him that if you gave it the beginning of it Jedi kind of treatment, then, you know. It can't really be about Jabba, though. No, it can't really be about him, but in the same way that, you know, Jaws isn't really about the shark, you know what I mean? It's about yeah. Roy Schneider and Robert Shaw and, you know sure, what I mean? Sure. So I think you could probably do it in that way of like, like you say, he's a godfather, he's this person behind there. But but the other thing is, I, I sort of look at the Star Wars films that have been developed and I kind of think they, they tend to, I think they're going to tend to hew to a format. So yeah. I wonder how they would make Jab the Heart feel like every other Star Wars film, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I think actually it would be cool if it wasn't and it was it's like a gangster kind of movie. Yeah. You know? That yeah. would be great. Yeah. Um, but it's the same thing, you know, with like uh, with Rogue One, you know, like that, I, I felt that that was heading towards a slightly different direction. Right. Um, certainly compared to Force Awakens. So. Right. Um, yeah, so I think that there is room within there, whether Disney slash J.J. Abrams slash Lucasfilm slash whoever wants them to, gives them that much freedom, uh, apparently, you know, compared, you know, we've heard stuff about the Han Solo yeah. difference in tone, and that's why those guys left. So maybe, maybe not, maybe it would be a bit more straightforward. But um, the Kenobi one's a strange one, yeah. You're like, well, he just hangs out at the, like you say, little house on the June Sea kind of, yeah. what's a, what's, where's it a move for him other than him just... Fighting off sand people. Yeah, I could see this being like a little one-off adventure, like almost like a western. Yeah, where he just has awesome. a confrontation with some sand people, kind of thing. Oh yeah, quite small scale. Yeah. That won't be what happens, obviously, because they've got to have big space battles and you know. Yeah, of course. But um, th that is what I'd like to see. Just uh, a, yeah, a, a small event that happens in his nineteen years on. Yeah, Tatooine. Yeah, that'd be great. Like just some kind of um, you know, John Ford western style. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Just the quick and the Jedi. The quick and the Jedi, yeah. I can imagine him just like, you know, uh, the Alamo kind of just holding up somewhere, fighting off Tusken Raiders. Yep. Tusken Raiders of the Lost Ark. And breaking news that every cinephile will want to know, License to Drive will be remade. The 80s <coughs> vehicle for the <laughs> Corys, Haim and Feldman, <laughs> who were white hot for about 12 seconds in 1988. They really were. Is to get the remake treatment, which I guess is in keeping with the call by many to not remake beloved films because they don't come much less beloved than License to Drive. But what leapt out to me was the producer responsible, John Davis, has eight different films in production this year alone, and four of them are remakes, uh, including a second Shaft reboot and yet another interpretation of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Wow. Uh, Davis has an interesting career um, that stands atop two pillars, the Predator series and all of the worst Eddie Murphy films. 
including Daddy Daycare and Norbit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the first two films he produced were Predator and License to Drive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just come around full circle. Um, but he's just he's a whole truckload of remakes in about the last three years. And he's got four coming out basically 2018. Shaft again, eh? Yeah. Apparently, yeah. possibly with Samuel Jackson again. Again? Yeah. So it might be sequelly reboot oh, okay. rather than reboot, reboot. But it's the same thing with the uh, the Jedi thing where they're yeah. not too sure, you know, with the Obi-Wan Kenobi with it, Hugh McGregor. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, we'll come yeah. back again. Yeah. And in my favourite news story of the last month, the Witch star Anna Taylor-Joy is reteaming with her The Witch director, Robert Eggers, for Nosferatu. Oh, nice. Mm. Now, Eggers has been talking up the Nosferatu remake for some time. So it's no surprise that it now looks like it's happening. But I'm excited that Joy is attached because she was wonderful in The Witch and, of course, in Split. Mm-hmm. Uh, so knowing she's on board is great news. And it also means the film is one step closer to the filming slated for 2018. Um, and really, if anyone could and should remake Nosferatu, it's Eggers. Yeah. You know? um, That's really exciting, that is. Yeah, That's it great. really is. Yeah. 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 Especially if it goes in the same style as the original. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I do want some horrible rat-tooth-looking vermin uh Vampires, you know? Yeah. That's what I want to say. Yeah. And, I mean, Herzog did it so well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So, um, I think it can be done. Yeah. You know. Um, Oh, that's great. Mm, That's really good. good. Well, Predator actor Sonny Lantham has died. He has. He played Billy, the steely-eyed Native American tracker with a deep laugh and thousand-yard stare, whom so memorably, and I'd argue needlessly, sacrificed himself in the final act of the film, becoming the last one of the platoon who didn't get to the chopper. Uh, now, Landon had an unusual life. He was married five times, began a career in porn, then moved into Hollywood films like 48 Hours and Action Jackson, and of course Predator. But once he left the acting scene, he ran for office as a senator of Kentucky, but failed. He then challenged Mitch McConnell uh, as... Wow as a libertarian, but was kicked out of the party after he called for an Arab genocide. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, but I just found it fascinating that like, if he had managed to get elected, it would have been him, Arnie and Jesse Ventura, all out of predator all representing wow. their communities. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just found that fascinating. That guy's backstory. I was like, wow. Yeah. Be- I, I knew none of that really. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Busy. What the hell is wrong with you? There's something in those trees. And now we're on to uh, no comps. This is where we go through. We uh, review a latest release. And um, this month we decided to review one from the film festival that we saw. And uh, we both went and saw The Love Witch, directed by Anna Billia, starring Samantha Robinson, Gian Keys, Laura Waddell, and Jeffrey Vincent Parisi. Elaine is a beautiful modern-day witch obsessed with love. In her Victorian apartment, she mixes potions and prepares spells to entrap men. But alas, often the men turn out to be uh, disappointing, and then dead. But when she meets the seemingly perfect Griff, who is also a cop investigating the death of one of Elaine's former partners, things get complicated. (laughs) The Love Witch was filmed on 35mm and is a homage to Hammer Horror Films and 60s California Psychedelia. The performances are theatrical and affected, and this works particularly well for Samantha Robinson as Elaine, the love witch herself, uh, because she presents a veneer of alluring beauty, but behind the mask lays sinister intentions. No man is impervious to Elaine's charms, be they a lecherous university tutor, 
daydreaming husband or incorruptible cop, none of them can resist the Love Witch's spell. Yeah, it's interesting when you say uh, you talk about the homage because I read an interview with Bella where she was asked whether she was making a homage to sexploitation films of the 70s in particular. Mm. And I think Jesus Franco's Vampiris Lesbos was mentioned and Bella was pretty dismissive of that interpretation. Mm -hmm. She kind of says she sees the style of Love Witch as being simply recognise a style of design, of acting, you know, whatever, as being the best, basically. She loves that look. She loves that style of performance. And she likes that style of makeup, that kind of really classical frontal lighting that's Mm. used, you know. Um, Like the acting that has sort of pageantry about it, is the way she puts it. And I'm interested in that, the idea that everything has to be called a parody or a homage when it could simply be making a film in a style that you deem superior. Yeah, I mean, I, when I say homage, I mean that in the broadest possible term. No, no, uh, and, I, and I, I absolutely think, get what you're saying. And I also think it is it is deciding to take something from a time and then doing that. So if you do a German expressionistic film from the 20s, you're still doing a homage to a German expressionist yeah, or, film from or, the 20s. Or because you, you're knowingly taking a style and gelling with that. It's like if you did a film noir in the 40s. As if you yeah. film noir now. If you performed like a, but yeah, but I guess if you performed a, a jazz song, would you people going, oh, he's doing a homage to jazz, mm. or is he performing in the style of jazz? Do you know what I mean? Or is he a jazz musician? Are you? Do you know what I mean? I think it's un- interesting. That uh, we, yeah, but that's more of a jazz is more of a, st- well, country music. Yeah, well, if, but, if but, you performed yeah, country but, music but, song, yeah, but that, people that, saying you sure, but they're timeless. Whereas I think this is very much of a time. So if you if you're choosing that, you, you're intentionally going back and taking things that are specifically from a time period and bringing them into the modern times. But that's just is that just because cinema doesn't stay in one place? Uh, I think so. I think it keeps evolving and keeps moving. I'm just saying that I, I understand that it's not a homage in the strict sense of the word or a parody, mm. but it is definitely taking elements of a, t- a very specific time oh, and very it's a, a very specific time and a very specific film, you know, Oh, it's absolutely a very specific look. I mean, yeah. you know, the love which you're not going to see another film like this, eh? Mm. You're not going to sit down at a screening and watch a film that looks quite like the love which. No, that's right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite remarkable. Oh, and just on the acting, you're, you're right. Everyone's got this kind of presentational style of acting, which is to say a kind of mannered, maybe stilted performance, but mm-hmm. possibly. And how you take that, it's going to depend on your mileage and I think the quality of the performances within that, you know? Like you say, Robinson is really good, I think. She really mm. nails that. She gets the comedy without seeming comical in her, in her own performance. Mm. Um, but it proves too tough, I think, for others. You know, there's a scene at a bar near the end or the Renaissance Fair scene, you know, mm. uh, where it feels like there's, a, there's some rough performances going on there, yeah. right, where people just have, have struggle with that yeah. mannered performance style, you know. Um, having said that, I really like uh, the first, her first boyfriend in this film played by Paris. Uh, you know, I thought he's pretty great. Pretty yeah. hilarious actually. Um Well he's a he's a uh he's a soap opera actor from General Hospital, this guy. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what makes it help. What it helps, eh? <laughs> Probably well, I think you can t- tap into that um kind of overreaching, drawn out kind of broad performances. Yeah. Quite yeah. naturally. The story is presented through the female gaze, and I think it is no accident that love is the motivation for murder. Uh, once the men start declaring their selfish, masculine views, you just know they're going to die. Uh, but also, all three go back on their original stated convictions. Uh, the tutor, Wayne, who fancies himself as a ladies' man, claims he doesn't want to settle down due to woman's neediness, then becomes, he himself, almost insufferably needy. 
as does Trisha's husband, Richard, who has dreams of living his criminal and edgy life. He cannot bring himself to break out of his unhappy home life, but cannot live without Elaine either. And finally, the policeman, Griff, communicates that he doesn't want to be suffocated by estrogen, I think he says at one point, um, that it will stop him from being an effective detective. Um, <laughs> and of course, he is eventually refusing to face the facts that everyone can see uh, his lover is a killer. So mm. all of these guys kind of go back on what they say. Elaine is presented uh, by by herself, really, mm. as the ultimate male fantasy. Uh, and it's one of the, and I guess the message is be careful what you wish for in, in some respects. But, and it might not even be Elaine's fault that in the world of the love, but she is simply a, a heightened response to weak masculinity, you know, yeah. which wants a perfect woman, or at least says it wants a perfect woman, but can't deal with the fact that sexual love becomes real romantic love. And in that, that I think, in, in Billa's view, is where the comedy comes from, watching weak men be undone by Elaine. Uh, I particularly enjoyed watching, like I said before, the pathetic disintegration of cool college professor Wayne, all corduroy cool, into this kind of blubbering, helpless mess. Yeah. You know? And I think uh, the same happens with the, the next boyfriend as well. Um, yeah. Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's also the idea that some of this can be seen as uh, not really murder. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, or, you know, there's one definite murder later on you know, that Elaine's responsible for, but some of it is kind of implied that maybe a lot of this is just, um, se- you know, self-fulfilling, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I did sort of wonder at one point whether Elaine is really desperate to, to, to find these men and this has mm. been constantly disappointed. Or it is part of a kind of an elaborate gender revenge. You know, she's using the wiles and witchery to punish men by using their own weaknesses against them. Yeah. Um, she does at times seem like a trauma survivor too. You know, the way she reacts to Trisha's husband's death with kind of absolute coldness. You yeah, know? that's right. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah. She's just so disappointed by them, you know? Yeah, I mean, the early comments from Elaine and Trisha about what it takes to keep a man happy. Uh, Elaine, on the surface, is looking for love, but she reveals herself in some ways as a narcissist and also devoid of sympathy for either the men she destroys or even the other woman it affects. But there's also the sense that we have caught up with Elaine at her wit's end. Yeah. A person who has been dismissed as merely a vehicle for attraction rather than anything deeper. She has been defined by her objectification, and now she possesses a warped understanding of what men want that leads her to murder them once they've fallen in love with her. But is it love, or is it lust, and is everyone involved basically selfish narcissists? Yeah. That's the other question. Yeah, it's an interesting film from that point of view, eh? Yeah, because she is certainly, at times, extremely unsympathetic, and then other times she shows an incredible amount of, uh, like with Wayne's death, you know, like the, proce- the, the the kind of procedure she goes through mm. of uh, of kind of honouring him or what they shared. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Because other times she's like, ah, oh, whatever. And with that one, she she does take her time with. Yeah. We sort of touched on, I think, the style of this film. So Annabella, as well as writing and directing and producing this film, uh, made the, designed the sets and did the costume design, edited mm. it, uh, was involved in the music composition as well. To- it like took seven years to to go from start to finish on this film, which is extraordinary, and it has such a look too. Yeah, I mean the design is amazing, and I can remember just there was one particular moment, and it's when um, uh, Trish and Elaine first meet, and then and, uh, they could decide to go to the Victorian tea rooms for a bite to eat. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Elaine says, "I'll just freshen up," and boom, there's like this cut to this vast, incredibly, outrageously overdesigned all pink tea room. You know? Yeah, and. Uh, Pink tablecloths, pink walls, and the harp is providing soft background music. 
uh, and Elaine, along with everyone else in the room, is dressed in head-to-toe pink with this huge pink hat as well. Yeah. Which was, I guess, her just freshening up a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's such an astonishing moment. It's such a statement of stylistic intent, you know? Mm. It actually made me just go, whoa, just in my <laughs> seat, you know? Yeah. Because it is just so over the top. It's great. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, like I say, the, the film uses techniques. Uh, it, it uses, like, rear projection. Yeah. Period accurate makeup, like light orange lipstick and dark turquoise eyeshadow. Yeah, this is the first time I think we've ever discussed lipstick and eyeshadow. On it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting because um, uh, my partner and I have watched a few, you know, like films from the 60s or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And she's always like, oh, look, they've got orange lipstick, orange lipstick. And so right, I only right, just started right. noticing it in the last year or so. And then when this came up, I was like, I noticed it because I was like, oh, look, they've got that right. You know, yeah, kind yeah. Of orange lipstick almost look you know mad men do it as well yeah. so yeah uh and some of the sets look like they're straight out of bewitched you know yeah. like the uh yeah. her, her apartment or the uh the, the witch shop the magic yeah. shop she her, goes to. her apartment is just delicious. Oh, it's fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. yeah it's like bewitched and and the color the lighting everything it, it is so 60s that's what it reminded me of you know it's almost like you know 60s batman or get smart or something that's just those vibrant reds and uh, yeah, it was fantastic. But also the film takes inspiration from Italian cinema and not just a colour palette from horror giants like Argento or Bava, but also from non-horror filmmakers. Uh, the mock wedding at the medieval fair, especially reminiscent of Fellini style, I thought, mm. um, and the kind of play within a play there. Uh, yeah. And look, the, the gender issues are present from the outset and fraying at the edges of every scene is the inconsiderate and seemingly insatiable male sexual appetite represented at its most visceral during a disturbing scene where the kind of villagers raising ire against witches threatens to turn into a gang rape. Yeah. And another scene where, like, a warlock just, like, mindlessly gropes Elaine while he's talking to his own wife. Yeah. It's really unusual. There's also a scene where Trish sneaks into Elaine's boudoir and begins to try on Elaine's clothes, wig, and makeup. And it is in this moment that Trish realizes what Elaine is and what she's capable of. Yeah. And the necessity of Trish essentially becoming a love witch herself, that allows her to kind of comprehend Elaine's powers. I mean, the social policy is so much fascinating. And I just love how at the beginning it almost purports this, you know, of that time, I guess, kind of 60s attitude of this is how you have to keep a man happy and, you know, you should be, yeah. you know, and you're just like, whoa, this is going to be pretty rough going if this is the way it. You know, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah, this is what mean, the film actually believes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know that it's not, but no. the, the, those characters are very much of that time, yeah, of that, yeah. uh, of that minds. You yeah. know, of the way they were presented back in those yeah. days, especially early sixties. Yeah, right. Yeah, kind of. And, and the thing is, this film isn't set in the sixties. No, it's actually set now. But, That's right. Uh, which is fascinating as well. You know, mm. you get scenes where you go, "Oh, there's modern cars," or somebody's got yeah. a cell phone. Um, and it takes you a while to get a grasp on that, eh? Yeah, especially the first time you meet Trish, she jumps out of like a Beamer or Audi or something, yeah. and you're like, whoa, like that's... Yeah. Eh? Look, the Love Witch has a wicked sense of humour and a unique style crafted with attention to detail, both on screen and behind the scenes. The love with which the film is presented is infectious, and the gender commentary expands as the story evolves. And uh, I really enjoyed this film. I think uh, people should hunt it out if they get a chance. It's really unique. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and look, we've said it before in previous years, but that's when you go to a film festival for. Yeah. You don't want to go to a film festival and see uh, a film you could see anywhere else and, and could easily, you know. Um, th- this is this is film festival screening. It yeah. absolutely is. And look, 
I loved it quite a bit as well. Even as I found it stretched its welcome a little bit, I thought. Yeah. Uh, but I admired it even more partly just for existing. It's a unique viewing experience, like I say, one of a kind, just in such a specific vision as well. Mm. Um, and such a bold genre experiment. Uh, and it's one of those films I also love to read about because it's been a joy to read uh, Annabella talk about the film and engage with critics um, and explain her rationale and her thought processes behind the film. Mm. It's a great film to engage with, you know, mm. for us to watch. And I think... If you're going to see it, you probably should because it's a really good film. But I think also just read more widely about it and just, you, you know, find out a little bit about the creation of it because that's fascinating as well. Yeah. Know? The opinions that this film raises are really fascinating. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're on to our favourite part of the show, your favourite part of the show. This is the tree of woe, where we nail a cinematic offender up to the tree of woe. And uh, Simon, uh, who are you nailing up onto the tree of woe this month? Right. Well, look, Comic Com has come and gone, and we've seen lots of trailers featuring super heroics and lots of news stories saying, Trader X just owned Comic Con. I mean, for the most part, they all look pretty much the same to me. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about trailers. I'm certainly not going to talk about the Justice League trailer, which I saw a fuzzy glimpse of, enough to see that Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman gets lots of screen time on the back of her sizable hit film. So, you know, good honour, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am going to talk about the god-awful monstrosity that is the new Mat- Batmobile. <laughs> so, remember when the Batmobile was a sleek, reskinned muscle car that Adam West and Burt Ward would leap into? And look, I looked at pictures of that car. It still looks awesome. Oh, it's so dope. So, so dope. <laughs> or when it was a super cool neon rocket sled on wheels for Michael Keaton and replacements to tour around in. Or when it was reinvented as an awesome real-world four-wheel dive bruiser for the newly gritty Nolan Batman to stalk Gotham City in. And I remember really loving that vehicle as well. Yeah, that's you know? really striking. Yeah, it was. Well, apparently the makers of Justice League remember none of that. Or maybe they have like a vestigial reptile brain idea of what made the Tumblr cool, which they mistakenly decided was, it's a tank. Which would explain why their Batmobile is a bland, armor-plated murder machine. Now, I'm just, I've never been a big enough fanboy of the Batman uh, to get the whole he-never-kills-people thing. But I still recognise that he shouldn't own an armoured car that seems to have guns, welded to guns, attached to, to rocket launchers. <laughs> that seems to have guns, welded to guns, attached to rocket launchers, like it was a vehicle for the death race, not for the Justice League. <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be used to blow up one of those armies of silver robots that these films seem so fond of. You know, just get around the whole murdering thing. But there's still no excuse for this crummy, vulgar-looking carnage contraption. We should love the Batmobile for its coolness, because we'd love to take it for a spin, maybe. Because we'd love to pull up at the lights in it. Or as Val Kilmer memorably said in Batman Fever, just because chicks dig the car. <laughs> but this thing looks like a war-obsessed five-year-old's idea of a cool car. Or perhaps Donald Trump's wet dream of a vehicle to roam his big, beautiful, imaginary border wall, blowing up illegal immigrants. But the only place it really belongs is the tree of <laughs> I haven't seen this. I haven't actually seen uh, the... Justice League trailer or anything? Oh, no, no, the Justice League trailer. The only way you saw it was somebody snuck a, sure. um, you know, uh, a phone in and recorded it. So there's yeah. no way to watch it. But I've seen stills of the car. And it's got like rocket launchers and machine guns on it. And I'm like, this isn't Batman. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I, I'm always assuming I haven't seen Batman versus Superman. Um, so I'm, I, does he kill people in that? I'm not sure. Well... Because in Frank Miller's Dark Knight, he does, right? So, I mean, in the in the book... Right, yeah, yeah. That was very controversial in and of itself, you know, yeah. 30 years ago when it was released. So, I'm not sure whether he did in the movie. The, the film shows him blowing up cars and, and things like that. Yeah. And so... He's walking around with a shotgun, which is very much Frank Miller's. Right, kind of thing. right. And, and, and so people have said, well, he's probably just 
damaging the car. Mm. There's no way he is, he does not murder people in that. <laughs> you know, yeah. absolutely no way. Yeah, I, I, I'm certain he's murdering people. Yeah, yeah. Gotham Death Race two. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, a, it's such a vulgar looking contraption. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's me, man. But they really have just. Oh, they just throwing good money after bad. Some of this DC stuff, it seems like. Hey, eh? it's like. Yeah. Oh. Make some make a right call. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I didn't want to see something beautiful looking, something with yeah. style and substance, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's me. What about you, Duncan? What's what's uh got on your wick this month? <laughs> well I've got my John Wick. Yeah. Well <laughs> fits in nicely with the subject matter here because earlier in the week, over a coffee, my illustrious co host here said, Do you have any tree of woe lined up? I was non committal. I had a couple of things annoying me, but didn't have anything concrete. And Simon said, all he said was, watch the trailer for Death Wish and get back to me. And all I can say is, boy, you've never been more right. <laughs> it is unbelievable. Unquestionably one of the most tone-deaf trailers I've ever seen. Bruce Willis becomes a vigilante after his family is attacked. Wife is killed. And he then has last cracks jokes and murders drug dealers, all to the upbeat fun of ACDC's Back in Black. Now, while the subject of the original film has always been met with strong opinions, even back in 1974, it seems that someone along the marketing line decided to sell this film as a good time, like John McClane goes wisecracking serial killer kind of sell. The moral quandary of the premise is given only the most dismissive lip service, and the trailer signals many things that are wrong with society, not just films. <laughs> In the time of racial tension at their highest in a generation, an escalation of police shootings in a country engaged in a cultural civil war that's spilling into violence, then in steps an angry old white man to kill all the bad guys. That in and of itself could make this woe-worthy, but to have it set to a rocking good time, trading quips means that the brutal justification of Willis's actions is just like a mere plot device to get us to have a good time murdering people. What's most alarming isn't that Cabin Fever and Hostile director Eli Roth is helming, but that Joe Carnahan wrote it. He wrote and directed two excellent, hard-edged, but thoughtful and smartly pitched films, Narc and The Grey. But then I remember he did Smoke and Aces, which is a gumbo pot of wildly disparate flavours to the point that it feels like you're watching a different film every scene. So until we see the film, we can't judge exactly whether the filmmakers will climb the tree of woe, but if they do, then they can find the gun-riddled, rotten corpses of these trailer makers waiting up there for them. This is shocking. <laughs> absolutely shocking. I mean, I guess expectations were low for an Eli Roth-directed <laughs> Bruce Willis-starring remake of Death Wish. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Death Wish gets a lot of stick, but I still think it, it had more to say about violence and revenge than this trailer's hinting at. Yeah. You know, it had more subtlety and substance to it. And you know, some I showed this to someone and I th uh, at work, and I think they did say, "Well, it's nice. It's good to see that uh, Bruce Willis is remembering to smile and 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 have fun now." And it's like, yeah, but in this movie, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. It's nice to see the smiling Bruce Willis, but not yeah. while he's murdering people. <laughs> and um, you know, I love ACDC, but when Back in Black hit, part of my soul yeah. died. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the place for it. Oh, it's just this is unbelievable. Yeah, it really is, and just um, you know, it's it's supposed to be about a man, a shell of a man, a hollowed out shell of a man, essentially finding, yeah. uh, feeling him driven to revenge because he's got nothing, not just having fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> killing right. people. Yeah, because even the Charlie Bronson original, he's kind of gone basically. Yeah. He mentally and 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 
morally, he's yeah. he's bankrupt. Yeah, absolutely. by the end of it. And I think even though it hints at even though it's like, hey, this guy in his mind is doing the only thing he can. Mm. You know, as a hum- he's lost his humanity, basically. Yeah. Lot, d- what's been done to him has caused him to lose his humanity. You do, and there's a process to it, too, in the original. Yeah. It actually takes quite a while and it's a, before he gets a gun and, and, and starts doing what he does, you know? Yeah. Just imagine if you'd, like, sold Harry Brown, but, you know, to Back in Black. You've had that on the trailer. Yeah. That, <laughs> it's like, oh, what are you doing? Kane making jokes. Yeah, just cracking cracking wise. Yeah, gags. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is one of the worst trailers we've ever seen. Yeah. Absolutely. Spoiler alert. So that's a spoiler alert for this month. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And Simon, uh, what was your film of the month? Oh, look, this is really tough. Uh, obviously, It Comes at Night. I adored. I think that's a really well-paced, mm-hmm. modern horror film of, of a very measured uh, type. But The Love Witch, man, what a great film. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting film and well worth engaging in. And uh, the only other film I never mean I didn't get around to mention is when I saw Annabelle Creation. So oh. Annabelle Creation, the prequel to a spin-off from Conjuring. <laughs> what right does this film have to be so good? Right. And it really is good. It's right. it's really beautifully shot. Um, it's, it's set in, I think, the 50s, and it has this gorgeous period detail. And a really uh, claustrophobic contained. It's all contained in this one house. Right. Um, it's a really lovely horror film and um, well worth checking out. Okay. And, and, and more so, I guess, because it's surprising that yeah. a film this far down the track should be this good. Yeah. And it is. Right. Yeah. I, uh, it's crushing it at the box office. I know that much. Yeah. So, and that's yeah. great to see too because, I mean, it's nice to see the good ones being rewarded with the success, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And good word of mouth, obviously, counting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what about you, Duncan? What was your film of the month? Um, well, uh, I can't really go past Dunkirk. Uh, you know, it seems probably a bit redundant to talk about it seeing as it's smashing the box office as well. Uh, it's a must-see big screen experience that showed a real growth from Christopher Nolan and I was pleased to see him pare back the length and sometimes bloated storytelling of his recent works, right. uh, including Interstellar and The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, Nolan does a remarkable job of displaying the experience of war. While it's not the kind of all-consuming, visceral overload of Saving Private Ryan or the dehumanized nihilism of Full Metal Jacket, Dunkirk instead is actually a stylish thriller with a very fluid timeline, excelling in incredible tension uh, Hans Zimmer's score is among the most effective and striking he's produced, and that is not faint praise considering his contributions to Nolan's Inception and Dark Knight. But Nolan also casts very well, leaning on true talismanic Shakespearean theatre actors like Kenneth Branagh and Mark Rylance to deliver the gravitas while keeping two disparate ends of the soldier's temperament in the face of war, with the shell-shocked Killian Murphy reflected in the ice-cool Tom Hardy's pilot. And this is where I found the film the most gripping. The aerial battles were really right. breathtaking, really good. It's kind of, I don't know if I'd go back and watch all of Dunkirk again, but I'd gladly watch the aerial battles again. Oh, cool, They're man. Really, really good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's probably, like, say, redundant me telling people, hey, you should go see Dunkirk. Um, <laughs> but uh, can I also just quickly chip in, because, you know, I saw Dunkirk a couple of weeks back, but a late inclusion to the film of the month is Captain Fantastic. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right. I saw this just a couple of days ago, so I didn't really have time to kind of go, well, which do I prefer, Dunkirk or Captain Fantastic? But it really has stuck with me, and I love the ride uh, it took me on. A film pitched somewhere between, like, Fight Club and Little Miss Sunshine. Um, Viggo Mortensen delivers a vulnerable and edgy performance as only he can. Uh, it's beautifully shot with sharp dialogue and a unique perspective and a lot of heart, so I suggest hunting it out. And a lot of people, you know, amount of people I go to work and I go, have you seen Captain Fantastic? And they're like, I don't like superhero films. 
You know? Oh no! <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, really? no, 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 no. He got nominated for an Oscar, I think, for this. Yeah, you know, um, at yeah. least a Golden Globe. Right, uh, right. You know, um, so like, what, what's it about? Yeah. So uh, it's either going, either some superhero film fans are going to be very disappointed when they put in Captain Fantastic, or uh, yeah, or the people who would actually really like Captain Fantastic will never see it because of the title. Yeah, that's odd. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. thought of that. If you um. look at it on an EPG, you know, like on Sky or something, and you're skipping through, you're like, what well, Captain Fantastic? I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's unusual. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't yeah. thought of that. Because I was aware of this film when it first came out. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, really enjoyable. I recommend checking it out. Oh, great. And the song we're going out to, Simon, is... Bushes of Love. Look, <laughs> in honour of the upcoming Ben Kenobi movie, uh, we thought we'd play this, what do you call it, crazy lip-reading version of uh, the scene in Star Wars where Ben Kenobi explains what happened to his father, uh, to Luke. Uh, this is really insane. I really love it. Um, after you've heard a bit of it, I'll watch it on YouTube because then you can see the, like the, the lip reading and how it works. Yeah, but uh, I've still got a real soft spot for this song, and I actually just watched Star Wars again in the weekend. Right, um, holds up really well. Yeah, ah, so good. And I've forgotten how dirty and lived in that universe looks as yeah. well. You know, it's, it's really neat. And you watched a special version of it, didn't you? Yeah, I watched the de- what they call the despecialized version. <laughs> so what this is is uh, someone who spent a lot of time trying to recreate the look of the original Star Wars before all the horrible CGI additions George Lucas made. Mm. So, you know, uh, Greedo does not shoot at all. There's no Jabba. There's no crazy Jawas falling off riding monsters. Uh, it's just the pure original edition. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it can't looks wait to really watch it. great. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, go out and see some of those films we talked about, particularly The Love Witch. And um, we'll see you all next month. Yeah, take care. Cheers. Yo, never knew my dad, he didn't care about me Dead horizon is all my macro binoculars see Moisture farming all my life and not a drop spilled My aunt and uncle double sons and sipping blue milk My aunt and uncle double sons, I'm sick of blue milk But then a desert hobo came and told me We all got a chicken, duck, woman thing waiting for us Every day I worry all day Waiting in the bushes of love Something's waiting in the bushes for us Yeah, something's waiting in the bushes of love yeah, Every day I worry all day About what's waiting in the bushes of love Something's waiting in the bushes for us Giving men sex is a way of unlocking their love potential You sound as if you've been brainwashed by the patriarchy